Tonight is, um, I would say, a difficult message, but um, I want to make sure that it's not overly facty. I want us to really glean some truths from this that are really applicable to us. And so, Father, I just pray right now that your spirit would speak through me, that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that your truth, Lord God, would abide in us, that there would be deposits of what your spirit is very personally speaking to our hearts, and that, Father, that there would be takeaways from this. And I ask you, Lord God, for your blessing upon this message. Spirit of God, speak clearly to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I love those movies where it, it's coming close to the end of the movie because you're, you're looking at your watch, and it just seems as if everything, literally everything is going against the good guys, and they're about to get creamed, right? When you watch The Lord of the Rings, it's like they dis, they're, they're destroying, uh, what is it? Um, what, no, no, okay, Helm's Deep, yes, but what's the one after that? I Minas Tirith, Minas Tirith, and then when they're standing before Mordor, it's like they're totally surrounded, and this is it. Have you ever seen that movie? And right there, they're all in this little circle, and then all of the, the, the demonic forces that are opposing them are surrounding them. They're about to get engulfed, and then I won't tell you what happens, but there is clear breakthrough, and the good guys win. This, in essence, is what Armageddon is. Now, when I say that word Armageddon, I want you to think, what comes, I want you to, I want you to say, what comes to your mind? And so maybe just write down a few things. What comes to your mind when I say Armageddon? Now, generally, Armageddon falls in this, uh, this, package that is very popular in Hollywood, apocalyptic type of movies. Can I just tell you something? There is no such thing as a post-apocalyptic movie. I get it. Dystopian movies are the in-trend today, but there's no such thing as a post-apocalyptic movie unless it's about heaven, okay? Enough said. But we live in a, we live in a, in a day right now in which Armageddon is a name, even um, so many people throughout history, Napoleon Bonaparte, he stood at a place in, uh, in Israel that I'll get to in a, in a moment, and he said, this would make for such an amazing battlefield. I can understand the, the, the war at the end of the age being fought here. Well, where did he get that? Well, he got it from the Bible, And he probably got it from popular opinion of his day concerning what Armageddon is. So what is Armageddon? For most people, Armageddon is, well, it's the end of the world, right? It's like the last battle. It's like World War III, right? I mean, we we don't know whether it's World War III or four or five or six, but we have this idea it's a war, Right? That it is World War III or what have you. It's the end of the age. It's fought in Israel. Most people would have heard something about Armageddon or what's commonly called Har Megiddo, Mount Megiddo. It's in Israel. Um, what some people aren't aware of that it's actually led by the beast or the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. And the end of the battle is the return of Christ. Now, I want, us to, I want to ask a few questions uh, right now but I, that I want to try and seek answers to 
during our time together. There's two main passages we're going to look at. I'm going to start in Revelation 16. So turn in your Bibles there, Revelation 16. I'm going to be reading several verses from there. And then Revelation 19. Both of these are about this battle at the end of the age. Is it a literal battle or is it a symbolic or spiritual battle? That's a question we need to ask. But what is Armageddon? Where will it be fought? Who will be in the battle? What is the purpose or the nature of this battle? And how does it end? I just want to say what's going on in Israel right now, listen to me, will not end in Armageddon. And I hope that you're going to come to that conclusion as we search through these scriptures. My purpose is not just say, everybody climb aboard my view. But if you disagree with me, I want you to be challenged. I want you to feel challenged from the word of God. What does the word say? Because Hollywood and books and people's opinions, godly men and women's opinions, have impacted what we believe Armageddon to be. First and foremost, that it is a physical battle that culminates this age that Jesus returns to. And I want to just say, can we each just step back and look at this, the word of God, as it were, afresh. And let's allow ourselves to be challenged. What is Armageddon? It's mentioned only one time in the Bible. That's in Revelation 16, so that's where we're going to start. That same battle that happens on the great day of God is talked about again in Revelation, 4, excuse me, Revelation 19. So we're going to need to look at that. But what's going on? I'm going to suggest to you that this, this, what's going on in Israel will not escalate to Armageddon. Is this possible? Let's look at chapter 16, starting with verse 12. Now understand that five bowls of the wrath of God have already been poured out. The last one was poured out upon the beast and his kingdom. Now as we remember, the, the beast is also called the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. Scripture permits us two understandings of the beast. Number one, that it symbolizes a kingdom. Number two, that it symbolizes a king. He is called in Revelation 17, the eighth king. There were seven heads that represent seven kings that the beast had. And the beast himself is not just a kingdom, but he is also a king. I understand there's a lot of views of people who understand Revelation as I do. There's generally four different views of Revelation. I won't get into them. But those that I hold uh, a kindred spirit with and how they understand it, I part company with them because they would say that the beast also represents an ideology. It the beast represents um, philosophies and different religions. And, and I'm sorry, when I, when, I'm, when I want to know from Revelation what the beast is, I find myself coming to only two conclusions. He, we're permitted to understand him either as a kingdom or as a king. That's all that I find. I don't want to go any further than that. Because that's all that scripture tells me. Now, I want to just, before I read, I want us 
to just step back a bit in, with regard to a little bit of review, not much. I am just going to suggest this. Armageddon comes at the end of the age, yes. We need to find out what that is. But as Christianity progresses, it progresses to what Scripture calls in over two dozen verses in both Old and New Testament, it refers to this global revival in which the glory of God fills the earth even as the waters fill the seas, which is everywhere. The glory of God will fill the earth everywhere, including the 1040 window. And it says in Habakkuk, a sister passage to the one I just quoted you, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Not just a head knowledge, but truly knowing this glory. It's going to spread throughout the earth. Christ's kingdom will spread from the river to the great sea, from one end of the earth to the other. And so this, there is a global revival that is going to be coming that maybe we're experiencing just a little bit of in our day. But at the end of this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that there is going to be a rebellion before the day of the Lord. And there's, we looked at six things that comprise the day of the Lord. Before that day, there must be a rebellion. What the Greek word there is apostasia. And that basically means either a political type of rebellion or a spiritual rebellion. A turning away from God wholesale. This will happen... And it appears that the man of lawlessness, again, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, will help lead in that. And as he is raised up within the church, he will eventually, you know, the church, eventually he will, he will declare himself to be God. Now, the Bible says in the temple of God, and I'm going to suggest to you that Paul would never call any temple in Jerusalem the temple of God. He wouldn't. Because there's, there would then be sacrifices, bloody sacrifices, and basically a shaming of the cross. The cross is the complete fulfillment of all of those Old Testament symbols. Actually, Paul uses the phrase temple or temple of God eight times in his writings, and he never uses it to refer to a physical temple. It always refers to the church. So I'm just going to suggest to you that this man of lawlessness is going to, is going to be raised up within the church um, and then he is going to part company, obviously, with the real church. And it would appear that he then turns around and he begins to persecute the church. Because Revelation is very clear that the beast makes war against the saints. And we're going to look at that in just a little bit. But we see this rebellion. We see the revelation of the man of lawlessness on the seed scene. He deceives the entire world. Imagine. He is empowered, I would suggest, even demonized by Satan himself, and he is empowered or enabled to deceive the world. And he does it, both what Revelation and 2 Thessalonians 2 says is he uses false signs and wonders. So do not be deceived. Those who truly love the truth, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, will not be led astray by this. They will not be. And so he leads the world astray, even to the point where he gathers people against the saints to make war against them, against the saints. And, at the, and in this battle, when all seems lost, just like uh, Aragorn and all of those in the Lord of the Rings surrounded, this is it. 
and yet it's not. And Jesus then returns and destroys the man of laws. And so what I'm going to do right now is, and we're going to be focusing on that last part. I'm going to start right here, Revelation 16, starting with verse 12. I'm going to be reading through verse 16. The sixth angel, five have already poured out their bowls of wrath. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters were dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. Wow. My wife is convinced that all frogs are demonized. She's just convinced of it. But I'm not quite so sure about that. But anyway, here it says that these evil spirits, and they looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the beast, excuse me, of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Satan, the beast, or man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. (laughs) There were spirits of demons performing miraculous signs. Remember, I just mentioned this, doing miraculous signs. And they go out to the kings of the whole earth to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. I'm going to talk about the return of Christ next week. But here we're going to move on. Verse 16 is what our focus is. Then they gathered the kings together. Who did? Satan, the beast, and the false prophet gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Skip over with me if you would. Keep your finger there. We're going to come back to it. To chapter 19, starting with verse 11. Revelation 19:11. I saw heaven standing open... And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Church, who is this? This is Jesus. Yes, it is. With justice he judges and makes war. Jesus makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. How is Jesus equipped to do this battle? He is equipped to do this battle with a sword, not in his hand, but coming out of his mouth. Just so that you have that in your mind here. The sword coming out of his mouth. He will rule them to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This doesn't sound like the gentle Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey now, does it? On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all birds flying in the air, in midair. Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men. This is rated PG-13, by the way. Of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast 
and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who would receive the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword. They came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Wow. I think there is a purposeful contrast made here between the great supper of God and what we just read, what, what, what we would, if we were reading through Revelation, what we'd have just read prior to this concerning the wedding feast of the Lamb. You have the wedding feast of the Lamb, this glorious time of the saints, and it's contrasted, and all the blessings of that, and it's contrasted with the great supper of God, which is all about judgment, all about the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So let's go back to Revelation 16. Armageddon, in its, that's the Hebrew, it would literally, that, that when, it, when it comes into Greek, it loses the, the H sound, and so it just came to be known as Armageddon rather than Harmageddon or Harmageddon, which would mean Mount Megiddo. Now, in all honesty, Mount Megiddo is not a natural mountain. If you go to where the city of Megiddo is, and there were plenty of things happening in or near Megiddo, the Valley of Jezreel is actually a part of this big open space. The Kishon River runs through there right next to Megiddo, and Mount Megiddo technically is a tell. Do you know what a tell is? I'm not talking about speaking something. A tell is a mound. When a city gets old and they knock the buildings down, they build the next city on top of it. And when that gets old and it crumbles, they build the next town on top of it. And that's what happens with these cities throughout history. And it causes a mound to rise. That's all Megiddo is. That's all what Har Megiddo is. It's about 70 feet high. So it's only a hill. But the Hebrew word Har is also used with regard to Har Zion, or Mount Zion. So this is talking about Mount Megiddo. It is a big open space. It encompasses the Valley of Jezreel. It is pretty much just south of Galilee in a plain. There are mountains to the east, some mountains to the west, and it is a big open area. So here's my question. Is that where this battle will take place? It seems obvious that the answer is yes. So I want you to just take pause and let's look at a few things. Because the harlot, the great harlot of Babylon is not Babylon. Babylon is a type, and she most certainly is not Babylon. We come across various words um, that are used. As a matter of fact, if we were to look in verse 12, 
The name of that river is what? The Euphrates River. It says this, that the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, I realize that it is very popular thinking to suggest that the kingdoms, the kings of the east are those kings of China. And people pull out their prophecy maps. They talk about how many are in this army of China. But here is my question. In our day, would an army of 200 million from, Ch from China, that's the number that's used. I'll get to that in a minute, though. Would they march thousands of miles, come to the river of Euphrates, having crossed the Ganges and many other rivers that are bigger and deeper than the Euphrates, but in order for them to get to Mount Megiddo, the Euphrates has to dry up? Is that really what we're supposed to understand this to mean? Others would suggest, well, it's not the armies of China, but it's just Iraq and Iran and, and maybe those Types. Well, first, I guess they have to cross the Tigris unless they come closer to the mouth. But that's about 300 miles. Do you realize that very rarely will an army travel 300 miles? It would be so much easier if they were to travel via boat to the, to the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, this is how we do it. When we attacked Iraq, we went into the Persian Gulf. We didn't march across Europe. We went into the, the Persian Gulf. I, I'm just trying to help paint a picture that if we understand this literally, that the Euphrates River is a point in which an army, and I'll get to this in a moment, 200 million, but an army of 200 million can't cross it until it dries up. Can I suggest that as we look at this word, Euphrates River, that it is another type. Just like Babylon is a type. It is a type. A type of what? Well, let's, the, the other time that we encounter it, turn over with me to Revelation, excuse me, Revelation 9. And this is where we get the word 200 million. It's actually, this number is actually in the Greek, two myriad myriads. Myriad in the Greek would generally be understood to mean either a lot or 10,000. So it would be two 10,000 10,000s. And if you do the math, that's two million. Now, if you remember the angels that surround the throne in Revelation 5, there are 10,000 times 10,000, or a myriad myriads, a myriad of myriads. Basically, Scripture is not concerned about an exact number 10,000 times 10, okay, that's, a, that's what, 100 million. I don't think that's what the author, I don't think that's what John is trying to communicate here. He's simply trying to discuss, he's simply trying to communicate this huge number. So let me read the, the passage, and it's just two verses. Verses 13, excuse me, verses 14 and 16, four, excuse me, 14 through 16, I'll get this right. It said, this is the angels, to the sixth angel who had the trumpet. This is the, the sixth trumpet, by the way. If you remember our little graph that I had shared, six trumpets, six seals, six trumpets, six um, bowls. The sixth trumpet, it's in the sixth angel who had the trumpet. He says to him, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. 
and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was two myriad of myriads, or 200 million. I heard their number. Then it goes on to describe this army with very symbolic language. So here is my question that we need to pause. We're asking, are there four angels literally at the Euphrates River? And if they're literally at the Euphrates River, what is holding them up? Can these four angels just not cross a river? Is, is, something, them hold, is something holding them back? And if, if you were to have a map in front of you with the Euphrates River, it's like right in the middle of the Middle East, why is that keeping them somehow from bringing judgment upon my, mankind? See, literally, that, that, wouldn't have, that wouldn't be able to happen. I mean, there's, most of mankind, actually, is on the other side from Israel, on the other side of the Euphrates River. You've got India with over a billion, and China with over a billion, and many others, of course. And so I'm just going to suggest to you that the river Euphrates is there to represent the division between the enemies of God and what is God's. When God brought judgment upon Israel, it was always referred to either as the nation from the north or the nation from the east. And that's because Babylon could be referred to, so it was big on the other side of the Euphrates. It was, some of it was to the north and some of it was to the east. Talking about uh, Assyria in, and Persia, these would be kingdoms that you could refer to either, either in the north or to the east. The Euphrates River, remember, the kingdom of Israel at one point went up to the Euphrates River, never across it. The Euphrates River represents that boundary between these kingdoms that conquered and on the other side, which would be Israel or the saints or the people of God. They would have to cross that Euphrates River and they would do this. They didn't have airplanes. They didn't have these big boats to be able to bring so many. But they, they would have to cross the Euphrates River. And that Euphrates River would act as a boundary between them. Here I believe he is simply saying God is going to remove all that holds evil back from assaulting the people of God. Okay? In this case, it's drying up the, the Euphrates River, which, by the way, over the last several decades has dwindled drastically. Of course, they attribute it to uh, climate change. Regardless, uh, no army is going to be held back by the Euphrates River. So I'm going to suggest to you that this is a type. This is John seeing in a vision the Euphrates River. That is God holding back the onslaught of God's enemies, he's holding them back until the very end. Kings of the east would refer to the enemies of God. He could have used the term kings of the north or kings of the east. But if you go in the Old Testament, you find this phrase, king of the north or the nation of the north or of the east. Uh, Cyrus is referred to the king from the east. 
And so these kings from the east basically represent the enemies of God. And they are coming against the people of God. I want us now to to go over to Revelation 19. And I want to ask this question, who is in this battle? What's this battle being fought about? Is it a land dispute? Is it about money? Why are they fighting? And who is involved in this? Let's look at this. Number one, we see in verse 18. So that you, talking about the great supper of God. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men of horses and their riders. Right now, we should start, wait a second, is this really literal? Because in a battle in our day, they would never fight with horses and with, and, and people riding the horses. And then it says, the flesh of all people. Or perhaps all types of people, free and slaves, small and great. Then it goes on and it says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies. The beasts and the kings of the earth. So the beast has managed to gather them, rally them. And what are they going to do? Where are they going to fight? It says, gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Here is the sole purpose of this battle, to fight Jesus and all who follow him. Let me just say that again. To fight Jesus and all who follow him. That is the battle of Armageddon or Harmageddon. I'm going to suggest that it is not a place All the saints of Christ are not going to gather at Megiddo so that the beast and all the kings of the earth are going to come against them and fight a battle on horses with riders and with swords in their hands. So what is going on here? This is what John has been telling us several times, actually, about the purpose of the beast, that his purpose is to make war against the saints, His purpose is to destroy the people of God. This is the very heart of Satan. His goal is to decimate the church, to discourage the church, to try and make war against them, persecute them to the point where they want to just give up. I'm going to suggest to you, even as Euphrates is not a technical place, but it is simply describing this barrier that holds back the onslaught of Satan's minions against the people of God. Even so, Megiddo is simply not a, he's not referring to a literal place, but he's referring to a battle. And Megiddo was a common battleground. We see many fights in Valley of Jezreel and on the other side of the Kishon from Megiddo and battles that took place near Mount Tabor, which is to the north and and this type of stuff. But this is simply a type that would represent war. Not a physical war, not a physical battle place, Because the beasts, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness's goal is to destroy the people of God. Look at chapter 13, verse 7. In chapter 13, verse 7, 
it says, he has given power, excuse me, he was referring to the beast, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Understand, there are two groups of people here. There are the saints, and there are people from every tribe, language, nation, all the inhabitants of the earth. That is how, in the Revelation, people are divided. The saints and the rest of the world. Notice that the beast, the man of lawlessness, receives power to make war against the saints, but he's given authority to, to rule over the rest of the earth. Because that is the nature of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Satan does not have authority over you, church. Not a single one of you who believe in Jesus does Satan have authority over. He can exercise power. He can bring persecution. But he, can, he does not have authority over your soul. Before I came to Christ, I was an enemy of Christ. And I did Satan's bidding. I did not feel like I did. But I was an enemy of God. I was in the camp, the dominion of darkness, Ephesians, Colossians 2.13 says. But he transferred me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I went through a transformation, all of you did, from the dominion of darkness belonging to Satan and the dominion, the kingdom of light, in which Jesus is the, the leader, the king, the ruler. We belong to Satan. He had authority over us. Why? Because in our nature, we yielded to sin. And sin enslaved us, and we bought into it. We surrendered to it. It was part of who we were, and as a result, we were slaves to it, yes, but we were also subjects of the kingdom of darkness with Satan as our leader. I didn't feel that way, but that's how Scripture lays it out. So the beast is given power over the saints to make war against them, but he is never given authority. Actually, church, listen, Jesus said that he has given us authority over all the power of the devil. All the power of the devil. But here's a picture of war. That is the beast's goal. In chapter 17, verse 14, back up to 13, referring to the ten kings, siding with the beast, it says they have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb. But the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. So let me just paint this picture real quickly here for us. Armageddon is a picture of this struggle between the saints and the very enemies of God. I'm going to suggest to you it's not in a particular location, but this 
Armageddon is a type of battlefield, and that is where war takes place. We will be engaged. Right now, we are engaged in war, but it will escalate. After we see this global revival, after we see the rebellion, after we see the man of lawlessness raised up, declaring himself to be everyone's affection, we need to unwrap that just a little bit more, but he is going to deceive the people and turn them against the church. And there will be massive, massive persecution of the church. This is the war. The phrase, the war, the war is found three places in Revelation. Now, now let me just help us understand what the significance of that is. If I were to talk to you about the world war, and how we managed to gain the upper hand, you would say, yes, we, we did. We, we did win that along with the allies. But Mike, which world war are you referring to? Because you talk about the world war, but Mike, there were two world wars. So you never, we never refer to them as the world war. We may say a world war, like the World War I or the World War II, but we don't refer to both of them as the World War. You understand this, right? That's the nature of this word, the. So when, we talk, when Revelation talks about the war, it's talking about one specific war, and it's always referring to Armageddon. We read about it in Revelation 16. The word the war is used there. We read about it in Revelation 19, and though in English we didn't see it, in the Greek there is, and they, they, he makes, the beast makes the war against the saints and the, the lamb. We also find it in Revelation 20, and I'm not going to get into that, but I'm going to have you do homework. Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10, refers to the battle of Armageddon. It's not a battle that happens at the end of a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth between his second coming and judgment. It happens at the end of this age. That's what that, that's what that is. The this, this enemies of darkness surround the camp of God, which basically be, would be the saints in their persecution. They have marched across the earth to, to, to do this. And then the fire of God descends from heaven and destroys them. And I'm going to suggest to you that that fire from heaven, 2 Thessalonians 1, I believe, would bear this out. That is the return of Christ as he returns with, in blazing glory with his angels and his holy ones. So, but I'm not going to get into that any more than to say that. There is a war that's going on right now. There is an escalation of this war in which Scripture, and again, only one time in Revelation 16, though it's referred to in two other places called the war, this is an end-time battle. I'm suggesting to you it's not in a location, a place. It is just simply the, the beast, the enemies of God, rising up wholesale against the people of God to destroy them. It says that frogs come out of the mouths of Satan, the, the beast, and the false prophet. Now, if, if you remember, we were going through, um, that's from Revelation 16, by the way. Revelation 16 and those verses that I read. Now, it, several weeks ago on a Tuesday night, we actually looked at these seven bowls of God's wrath. That's what they are. They're the bowls of God's wrath. We looked at the first five, actually all of them, hint at the plagues upon Egypt. 
the streams turning to blood, hail falling, darkness descending upon the beast and his kingdom, and these types of things. And here refers to, remember the plague of the frogs. The, each of the plagues were directed towards something that the Egyptians worshipped. They had many gods. Hecht, which is the frog god, of course, there was a plague of frogs that God sent upon the land. Now, here's the significance. As we're looking at this, and so, so much of this is get like they're referring to the types of judgments upon Egypt. And now we come across this frog. I mean, it looks like a frog. The goddess Hecht was similar to Baal, the goddess of fertility is what Hecht, the frog god, was. That would generally happen, of course, then in the spring, in which we move from death, which would be winter, to newness of life, which would be the spring, fertility, things grow, vegetables, flowers, trees, foliage. And what we discover here is that this is basically, remember, the fro- what do the frogs do is they come out of the mouth. There aren't going to be literal frogs coming out of these people's mouths. These are demons that look like frogs. When you look at a frog, what does a frog look like? He looks like a rock, right? I mean, if you were to just look at it from a distance, he looks like a rock. So why didn't he say demons that look like rocks? Unless they're stretched out like this. Then he might say demons that look like hands. So why does he say frog? I think it's because he is, he's referring specifically to relating back to this plague against Egypt with frogs, and that this frog god promised fertility. It promised newness of life. It even, there, there's this hint of resurrection power that they would believe came from this goddess, Hecht. And so what we see then is that Satan, the, the beast, the false prophet, they're promising newness of life. That's why everybody begins to follow him. Because he promises, I'm going to take, I'm going to meet this night. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a new life. Follow me, and I'm going to make all things new for you. And this is the promise that we see in socialism, that we see in every type of utopian um, ideology, like communism. It never works because the problem of sin is never dealt with. And the beast is not going to be any different as he promises this utopian society, new life, just follow me and and I'll lead you forward in this. And so consequently what happens is that he deceives the entire world. And Christians are a problem in this. And they must be exterminated. They are the enemies of the state. It culminates in the great day of God. That is another name for this. The great day of God is used only one other time in Revelation. And if you go back to chapter 6, and we looked at chapter 6, at the very end it says this. After the sixth seal talks about basically the destruction of the world where the sky recedes like a scroll, every mountain and island removed, and and then it goes on to say in verse 16, referring to the generals, princes, the rich, the mighty, slave, etc. Verse 16, they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
for the great day of their wrath has come. And, he, and who can stand? This is the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and the lamb. This is what is the, 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 the great day of God. When Jesus comes back, he will pour out the fury of his wrath in what is commonly referred to, at least in Revelation 19, and we'll look at, turn to Revelation 14, in which it's called the wine press of God. What do you do in a wine press? You have, you have grapes that are there, and then you, you, tr- you step on them, and you tread them with your feet. Hopefully your feet are clean, but you tread them with your feet, and you crush them until the juice of the grapes, if, 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 the juice of the grapes are pressed out. And so that juice is what they're getting, and that gr- those grapes must be pressed, constantly pressed. And so this is the imagery of the wine press. And if you turn to Revelation 14, it talks about this. This is the culmination then in Armageddon, this in which the beast and all the enemies of God seek to assail the saints, Jesus steps in and he pours out his wrath. He destroys with the breath of his mouth the man of lawlessness. In Revelation 19, it's the sword that comes from his mouth. It is truth that he speaks. He doesn't need a sword in his hand. He simply speaks the truth, just like he did on creation that brought new life. Now he speaks it and there is death and destruction against all the ungodly. This is the fury of the wrath of God Almighty that is directed against sin. And it takes place in what John says, this picture is a wine press. Now follow me here. In in, In Revelation 14, 19 and 20, it says, The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. They were trampled in the wine press outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. I'm going to go through this so fast, forgive me. 1,600, don't try and do the math, 1,600 stadia. That's, keep it at 1,600, that's 40 times 40. 40 in the, in the Bible is clearly a reference to uh, a testing or even judgment And this is multiplied 40 times 40. So this represents God's judgment coming upon them. It happens outside the city. There's only one other place that talks about outside the city, and that is outside the city of the New Jerusalem. What's outside the city of the New Jerusalem? It's those who who sin. And we could turn to Revelation 22 and see this. Outside the kingdom of God. God now brings judgment upon those who are not in the city, not those who are part of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside the kingdom of God. And he pours out his judgment upon them. This is what will happen when he returns. With the breath of his mouth, he will destroy all of his enemies. With the breath of his mouth, he will exercise the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That, that is just not what most People want to hear in a sermon, but it's hard to receive the fury of the wrath. It's okay, okay, the wrath of God or the anger of God, okay, but this is the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. I just, I I need to wrap this up, but church, we need to recognize that at the end of the age, in which people have been given multiple opportunities to repent of their sin. A revival just took place 
and they rebelled against what God had done. The weeds, the darnell, their heads opened along with the wheat, and now we recognize who the weeds are and who the wheat are. But the truth is, church, this is going to be the nature of this end times in which people are going to oppose God, and they're going to oppose Him vehemently. They've been given every opportunity. Remember with the bowls of the wrath, just right there in chapter 16, it says when he poured out bowl number five, it says that they cursed God, the God of heaven, because of their pains and sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. These bowls of wrath, the trumpets, the seals, the whole goal is to bring judgment upon the earth, to bring them to repentance. And yet there is something inside of them that still wants to rebel against God. And at the very end of the age, God is is basically saying, we are done here. The period at the end of the sentence has fallen. I've marked it there. There is no more. There's no such thing as a post-apocalyptic world because it will now be destroyed and I'm going to make all things new. And if you have refused to repent, if you refuse to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, you will be of that number thrown into that winepress, tread upon with the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. You see, church, God hates sin. He he loves his creation. He longs for them to walk with him. But he has given them ample opportunity. It's no coincidence that bowl six, Armageddon, follows bowl five, in which we immediately, at the very end of it, it says, and they refuse to repent. You refuse to repent. I've given you so many opportunities. The day has come. The day of The great day of God Almighty has now come in which he will gather them when he returns and throw them into this winepress that will be hell itself and he will bring judgment. He will destroy the earth and he will take the people who have refused to follow him and repent and cast them into hell, the lake of fire. You know, the Bible says that we were by nature objects of wrath. By nature. Mike Curtis, by nature... He was opposed to God. That was my nature. I opposed God. I really did try to to do good, church, just so you know. I was opposed to God, but because of my sin, I was an object of God's wrath. This is the significance of Jesus' death on the cross. The, the, The theological term is propitiation. That simply means that now God's wrath is turned away. It's not like these pagan gods that you sacrifice to and supposedly the God devours the sacrifice and now he's happy and he's going to turn his wrath away from them and somehow he's been satisfied with this food. Though this concept of offerings is certainly there, what it does though is it satisfies this lex talionis. Do you know what the lex talionis is? It's the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. And so at the end of the age, God will say, if you have not received the sacrifice of my son, life for life, you, re- you remain under my wrath and I must bring judgment. And this will, be, this will be the end. The only way to avoid that wrath, the wrath of the lamb. This is the lamb that when he walked upon earth was known for his love. 
But wrath and love are not opposed to each other. They are not opposed to each other. And so when the lamb comes, out of his love comes his judgment. To avoid that wrath, there is only one way. It is to accept that sacrifice, that lex talionis, that life for life found in the lamb. The lamb throughout Revelation. Remember when there's one throne and in the center of that throne, what does John see? A lamb standing and it was a lamb and it appeared to have been slain. Two chapters later, those taken out of the great tribulation, and I suggested to you that great tribulation was the entire church age. When they're taken up, what do they, they appear in white robes that had been washed in the blood of the lamb. Last time I checked, when you wash anything in blood, it does not turn white. But you see, in this it will. Because the blood of the lamb of God washes away every sin. God's wrath is turned away. The, the sacrifice of his son Jesus satisfied that wrath. It turned away the wrath of God. Why? Because the sins were completely taken away. Church, no matter how hard life seems to get, th this picture of Armageddon, and the onslaught of the enemy, feeling as if we are surrounded. See, it is in the nature of God to rescue those who call upon his name. And in that day, as the enemy rises up against the people of God and we cry out to him, the end of the age comes, the great day of God Almighty comes, and Jesus comes with all of his saints the resurrection of the dead, of those who have died in Christ, takes place right there. And Satan and all of his followers, including the beast and false prophet, are completely destroyed and they're cast into hell. They're cast into the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. God's greatest desire is that this world be spared of that wrath. They may not see Armageddon, but the day will come, if they don't trust in Jesus, that they will be thrown into that very same wine press. The love of God compels us to share this good news with others. Church, can you stand with me? Father, this is good news. It's not good news that there's going to be persecution. It's not good news that there's going to be hard times coming. But what's good news is that, Jesus, you're going to come to our rescue. You have our backs. Your greatest desire is to triumph over all that is evil, and you will do this. God, give us patience. Give us perseverance. May we press into you even in our day. Should Jesus tarry, no matter how hard it gets, God, your nature is still to come and rescue. Your nature is to defeat the enemy. And I just ask you, Father, whatever we face this coming year, may you step in, may you come to our rescue at the right time. And I ask you, Lord God, that you would so win our hearts that we would follow after you. We would persevere. We would never give up, Lord God, and we would always trust in you.